to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, excellent program this week. Very happy to get into uh, some subjects that might be a little bit different from what we normally cover on this show, but I think different is good. And uh, considering everything that's going on in this country, the election, in the world in general, sometimes it's nice to try to focus on things that... Uh, you know, are positive, uplifting, but also thought-provoking, and I and I think my guest this week is uh, precisely in that category. And um, I'm I, I received some good feedback from last week's episode uh, with Kalia Kuno. I really appreciated the fact that a lot of people uh, felt motivated and took heart in some of the things that were discussed there. And I'm hoping that uh, this week we can have more of the same. As usual, I just want to make a quick pitch for Counterpunch. Uh, the fun drive may be over, but uh, Counterpunch's need for your money never is. Uh, Counterpunch is poor. Uh, they have very, uh, very tight budget. They are putting out so much good content and quite frankly, consider, consider the way that this election season has played out. And where do you think we would really be without counterpunch? Far as I'm concerned, we would be missing the most critical voices on the left if we didn't have counterpunch. And, uh, so giving to counterpunch, donating, making that tax deductible donation, always a good thing to do. Buying the books, buying the uh, subscription to the magazine, all great ways to support the project. Anyway, let me turn to my guest this week. I'm so happy to have Yoav Litvin on the show. Yoav is an artist. He is a writer. He is a photographer, a psychologist. He is a promoter of collaboration, a promoter of public art, a promoter of all sorts of creative activities. So important. We cannot lose sight of the artistry. We cannot lose sight of those things that are beautiful, those things that are liberating, those things that are both politically and aesthetically charged. And I'm happy to have Yoav Litvin on the show. Yoav, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. Really honored. So um, I want to start, I mean, I, I kind of threw out a lot of uh, a lot of things there in the introduction, uh, welcoming you on the show, but I want to ask you a very general question, and I want to give you an opportunity to tell us about your new project, which is obviously one of the main reasons why I wanted you on the show right now. So before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the work that you're doing right now. Um, I come from, I'm Israeli by origin, and uh, but I grew up in New York City uh, during the uh, the 80s when it was a really scary town. And uh, so I've been back and forth, and those are kind of two, my two um, motherlands, fatherlands, whatever you want to call them. Um, so I have um, both those mentalities uh, within me, uh, kind of wandering Jew of sorts. Uh, and, and as far as my career, I've... Um, I've worked as a researcher, as a neuroscientist for 10 years, uh, and I decided to change my pursuit, my career pursuits, um, because I felt kind of exhausted within the publisher parish world, and I decided to devote myself to something that um, I find extremely important, and that is kind of a two-pronged approach to activism. Number one is I feel a utilization of my inner rage uh, to write and to express myself and to be active about the different um, huge immense uh, troubles that we are all um, that we are all exposed to on a daily basis and now of course today it's extremely relevant and number two is to actually in order to stay sane 
uh, I needed to do something positive as well, which is something um, I've been devoting myself to uh, street art and graffiti art in New York City and documenting the artists that selflessly uh, give to the public a true kind of democratic art form that communicates directly with communities uh, about the topics that are important for those communities. And I've been focusing on these artists and uh, bringing them uh, the attention that I hope will um, inspire people like it has inspired me. Absolutely. And you mentioned a number of different issues that I, that I want to touch on. But um, before I jump to that, I, since I didn't mention it by name, I, I, I want to do so now. Uh, the book, the very important recent book that you published, To Create Art Collaborations in New York City, that's the number two in the word create art collaborations in New York City. And um, there's going to be an exhibit uh, here in New York at the Bronx Museum of the Arts, and that's starting, I guess, here in just a few days from when people are hearing this. So tell us a little bit about how this project came together, what the project is really about, and why you think this particularly at this juncture, at this place in time, is so important. Sure. Uh, I, I strongly believe that we're, as a society, in a, in a deep uh, crisis. And I think one of the fundamental crises that we're in is this culture of individuality, um, this culture that we don't need other people in order to thrive, in order to, to survive in a sustainable uh, uh, community. And that's been advanced throughout the entire 20th century, and it's coming to kind of a, a, a crescendo with with the election of a character like Donald Trump who is the you know epitome of of somebody who claims to be self-made even though that's as as everybody knows that's not true he had a lot of help um kind of uh, getting where he's at now so my my what i'm trying to do with to create is to focus on the relationship uh between two people which Karl Marx defined as actually the most fundamental unit of humanity is actually two, not one, two. So I'm trying to f uh, focus on that relationship in a, in a way that will look at it um, just as we look at individuals. So the different kinds of relationship between different people and what, what makes them work, what doesn't make them work, uh, and showing that one plus one is far greater than two. That is kind of the the underlying sentence of that I would characterize this project. And what I did was um, I went around with nine pairs of uh, graffiti and street artists in New York City in the different boroughs, and I, I uh, documented their process. So that's why the book is called To Create, because it's a book about the process itself from A to Z, and then also um, the collaborative relationship. And I'm, I'm trying to focus on, on showing that the fact that two people work together, it's not that they, it cancels out their individuality. It actually extends their reach. And that's really important, I feel, in movement building um, and in, in any kind of endeavor that seeks to revolutionize uh, a system that is not working for the people. So I'm focusing on these relationships, um, and, and these artists are producing these visually stimulating works, and I'm hoping that... The fact that it, because we are a visual species, and the fact that um, they are so stunning, I hope will bring people to this topic, engage them in the, you know, make it cool, so to so to speak, so that people will actually be curious about working with other people, 
uh, it will be a, a challenge for them to, to, to think about who they can work with to develop themselves and to develop the community. So that's the book. It's nine pairs of artists, really different mediums, each one. Uh, there's collage work, there's screen printing, there's mural making, uh, really, really different um, and beautiful works. And it's uh, some of it is illegal uh, because street art and graffiti is still illegal uh, when it's not um, allowed by the by the owner of the of the property and New York has pretty strict uh, rules about it. So some of the pieces are illegal and some of the uh, individuals in the book, their, their faces are, are actually uh, pixelized because they didn't, uh, they don't want their faces out there, which also makes, you know, which also is, is uh, shows that this art form can stay within the radical realm. So that's the book. Um, as far as your question about the exhibit, the exhibit is a really amazing um, project that I've been involved in for um, some months now with a, a photographer by the name of Tao Batis. And um, Tao is a photographer who's been involved in the Harlem and South Bronx communities for quite some time. He is a black man. He is um, has has the access that um, I will I will never have, unfortunately in our very kind of um, stratified and, and, and divided society. And my friendship with him, you know, is, is something that really, for me, uh, brought out um, much more than one plus one. And it brought out my, my uh, style and my vision together with his beautiful style and vision to look at these communities, which are, the communities that are around the Bronx Museum, that, that, that is where the book launch is, uh, is being held on November 18th, and looking at duos that work. So we're a duo, and we're looking at duos, and we're going to present our, our images um, one next to each other. So he has a very kind of intimate approach, which also shows um, where he's coming from into these relationships. Um, relationships, a much closer bond with, with these communities than I have. Um, and I'm doing a more contextual kind of image and we're exhibiting one next to each other and hoping that it really shows a complex, rich, uh, uh and, and, and positive, uh, collaborative, uh, community. Indeed, at the risk of at the risk of stating the obvious for the lefties in the room, I mean, essentially, what you're describing is sort of a you know call it like a, a, a dialectical relationship between various media in art. Yeah, that's and 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 the thing that's um, that's um, uh, interesting is that the visual arts have been lagging behind. Uh, a lot of the other arts like music and theater and dance as far as the, 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 the level of collaboration. And that, and the reason that I see that that's happened is because it's much easier to commodify a square that we call a canvas. And once you commodify objects of art uh, and monetize them, it's e much easier to manipulate that and to divide and, and, you know, individuate uh, the, the artists and, and create a competition that, that um, is 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 counterproductive to a collaborative spirit. So I'm really trying to promote artists um, to 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 inspire artists to work together as part of their artistic development. As same as it is for me, I, I truly feel that the, my collaboration with Tao was 
is and hopefully will continue to be such a learning, uh, engaging process. You know, you actually beat me to the punch there because I was actually going to specifically use the word commodification because I think it is relevant here. And let me let me let me backtrack a little bit. You said at the opening of our conversation that you grew up in at least partially in New York City in the 1980s, and really the the, the 1980s is like the you know it's the height of the street art, graffiti art, hip hop uh, ascendance at the at a time when I mean anybody who knows anything about New York City in the 80s. I mean, graffiti was ubiquitous. It was all over every train and every train car, every wall you could find. It was everywhere. In many ways, it was sort of the height of that uh, street art, hip-hop movement. And as time has gone on and as New York has evolved further and further into the gentrifying, commodifying, real estate speculating kind of uh, megalopolis, I guess, that it is, uh, in many ways, those forms of art have either been erased from the public consciousness, from the landscape, or they've been commodified. And we can think of a number of examples of, you know, trendy hipster kind of artists who you would see in, you know, the Museum of Modern Art or at, you know, MoMA's PS1 or at some gallery somewhere or whatever, where 30 years ago in the 1980s, that would have just been perhaps some kid with a spray can. So tell us a little bit about the relationship between the evolution of the art forms and the evolution of this city and what your project is really trying to unpack about that relationship. Yeah, great question. Um, So street art and graffiti started, as some people who who are familiar with this culture know, started in the late 60s, and arguably in the Washington Heights neighborhood. And it was just kids. It's a, you know, with with markers writing their name. That's it. That's how it started. A a true counterculture um, that started from the ground up uh, and and it developed because it started it started out as a way to get your name out to 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 kind of the voice of the underground and but also i don't want to romanticize it it really started out as a kind of fame looking for fame kids playing around competing with one another and um it's it, it's it's the approach it started out with the, the 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 model of the shrimp which means you make as many as as you can and hopefully some will survive uh, so people would write their names everywhere in every location. And yes, I, I, as a kid, I remember the trains were completely full of tags, you know, bottom to top. Yep. And then it slowly evolved into a more, you know, the, the elephant or the human model where you actually develop the artistry and take your time making a piece. And whereas you could have written your name a thousand times, now you're taking your time and and, and working on a piece and adding cartoon ca- characters and adding different art and, and, and perfecting your hand style. And it really evolved into something that uh, suddenly uh, developers and, and capitalists looked at it and were like, oh, wow, this is something that is really unique and we could actually put a price tag on it. And like you said... Uh, it's really developed together with uh, with New York City, which has become you know a playground for the rich, uh, and and um, graffiti and street art. There is still authentic work out there, and that's the work that I'm interested in. Radical work that doesn't you know that doesn't um, adhere to to the whims of the art market, 
Um, but there is a lot of work that 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 tries to cater to to market forces. And just like in New York with 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 uh, with the real estate. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the new series America Divided, but it touches on on the on the this crazy real estate market and the inherent racism within it and and all these neoliberal forces that have taken over the city. Um, but there is a group of artists who who continue to produce this this kind of radical art. And particularly now, I think it's it, it, it's rather interesting because, you know, it's one thing when the art sort of evolves at a time of call it urban decay or the continuation of an urban decay in a climate of, you know, crime and all of the other, all of the other ills of the, uh, of the inner city, so to speak. Um, but today, you know, New York has sort of cultivated an image for itself, as you were alluding to the playground of the rich, where in my view, the kind of artwork that you're talking about has in some ways regained its subversive status in a sense, because it is now in a, in, in a very real way uh, attacking things like private property, things like profit and speculation, where you see this, whether it's in the quickly gentrifying Harlem or the gentrification in Brooklyn or what have you, all of these different parts of the city that have gentrified, there is an undercurrent of people who are making art that is trying to not only expose the problem, but to draw out some of these stark divisions that you're talking about. Right, correct. I, there's a rich culture in New York, and that's something that uh, has is still is still there. There's a radical culture in New York. There's obviously it's it's the it's the mecca, one of the meccas of art, and as the Empire City, it's it's uh, definitely the mecca here in the United States and 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 the world, and particularly graffiti and street art. Um, they started in New York, so every artist in the world, and the, and it's a really global art form these days uh, everybody's uh, doing it in every content continent there's 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 work everywhere and it's just brilliant uh so new york definitely attracts attention uh for being new york but i'd say that these days there's a lot of cities that are not as strict as far as uh like you said private versus corporate versus public property and also just the legalities if you get caught in new york putting up a sticker Okay, this is a sticker, one inch sticker on even on a pole that has a gazillion other stickers. If a cop catches you and it's a Friday night, you can stay all weekend in jail. And really, it's ridiculous. You know, there's there's so much going on that this whole broken windows Giuliani approach is so obsolete and debunked. Um, but New York still adheres to that because there is so much money. It's just insane how much money there is in the city and and the nypd as you know is one of the is, is one of the the strongest armies in the world and um and if you go to places like bogota or like santiago chile or valparaiso chile or sao paulo the, there's greater freedom there as far as the street art and the graffiti just because the art um has been has been embraced as a form of expression and also political expression especially same, same with same with caracas venezuela very much yeah right right and uh in new york it hasn't yes of course there's political work 
but it hasn't re received that tremendous level of respect that 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 the artists get in places that we just mentioned. Yep. Um, and it's still villainized in New York. So it's 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 a complex town. Um, I'd like to try to connect a couple of things here, if I could, because you mentioned at the at the top of the show uh, your your Israeli background, and um, I know just from from knowing you and knowing your work, your your deep commitment to uh, Palestinian rights, to the defense of Palestinian rights, to uh, you know undermining the apartheid state of Israel, and 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 speaking out against that, which aside from being, you know, sort of a courageous stand to take publicly is also, I think, rather uh, illuminating for those of us who kind of look at that uh, issue from, you know, from the outside looking in. But I want to connect that to what we've just been talking about, because in my experience, I've come into contact with at least, you know, a handful of really talented, really uh, uh, amazing street artists from Gaza, from the occupied territories, who have embraced all of these uh, core principles that you're talking about using street art as a form of political expression. So I want to get your analysis of the relationship between the creation of political street art and the expression of oppressed communities and how you see that all over the world. Street art is nothing new. So I don't mean, I don't claim that street art, is, you know, the, started in New York City, but the modern form of graffiti started in New York City. So if you look at struggles going hundreds of years and maybe even thousands, you'll see expressions on walls and on yeah. in public spaces. Of course. Um, yeah. And and I think I think public art is very is a very important means of expression. Just just like media is it's it's important that it's independent of any kind of commercial interest like counterpunch is is not dependent on some gazillionaire funding it the same thing with street art versus a gallery setting where you have the curator who's funding it who's not going to let certain content into the gallery the street doesn't have that limitation um i mean the person itself can be their own filter but if a person is a true radical and wants to express notions that would not be allowed in a controlled setting, the street is the place to do it. So yes, you're completely correct. And uh, Gaza has extremely talented artists and uh, it's, it's fantastic. I, unfortunately, I cannot go in uh, to photograph them and to talk to them and to showcase them. That's something that I, that, that I would love to do. One of the things that one of the things that I find particularly um, inspiring about the work that you're doing is you're not only uh, shining a light on these individual artists, you're really kind of putting front and center collaboration. And I think that collaboration is so key, not only in the creation of art, but in the creation of movements. I mean, obviously, it seems like it would go without saying, but I think we really need to think through this because a movement is far more than a collection of individuals. And I want to ask you, how do you see the uh, commonalities between the kind of collaborations you document in your work, artistic collaborations, and the kind of collaborations that are needed to create vibrant social movements? Great question. Um, 
Yes, that's exactly the kind of comparisons that I'm looking to make. And uh, that's why I kind of boiled it down to, to, to a collaboration between two people, because I just think it's the simplest form of collaboration. And uh, there are certain qualities that are necessary for a collaboration to work. Uh, for example, maturity of both sides, uh, an ability to have a flexible ego that bends and doesn't break, an ability to withstand critique, a respect for the other person, a very goal-oriented approach that you want to achieve a certain goal, and it's not about your ego and about the fame or the attention. It's about achieving whatever goal you have in front of you. So if you want to build a movement, that's the goal. You don't care if you're the one who did this. or you. Every person works within the framework of their expertise and contributes in the way they can towards that goal. So it's a certain kind of selflessness, respect, there's a trust, and there's also something that when you have multiple people, there's a scaffolding network that allows an individual to take risks that otherwise that individual can't or couldn't take. And going back to Donald Trump, for example, Donald Trump could not have taken all the financial risks and all the other risks that he's taken in order to get to where he's at without his father, without political connections, without all these connections from other people. So the scaffolding network actually allows uh, people to move forward, to advance, to reach places where, they're, where, where they wouldn't have, uh, have reached otherwise. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. No, so, so what I was going to say, uh, the collaborative network is something that um, truly, truly is, is critical. It's, it's a skill. The, the ability to work with other people is a skill that's, that's kind of been lost in our very individualistic society where those on top have an interest to promote the kind of thinking that, you know, this kind of Ayn Randian approach, Jean Piaget, who's, you know, talks about how the development of, of the person is solely de dependent on, on that particular person. Whereas you take somebody like Lev Vygotsky, who talks about the collaborative network, about the family network, and about how a nurturing environment, a nurturing cultural environment is critical for the development of the individual person. So those on top, the rich, the, the wealthy, they have an interest for us to think that if we don't succeed, it's our personal failure. It's not the failure of the system, right? That's how it, that's how it maintains. That's how they maintain what they have. And, that, and, they, and they release these myths of, of, of being a lone genius that, that has succeeded. But when you actually analyze all these myths, you see that there was always at least one person who provided support, who provided money, who provided uh, feedback, whatever was necessary in order to move forward and achieve certain goals. You know, you mentioned in that comment there, you mentioned Piaget and you mentioned Vygotsky, two of the giants of um, of pedagogy and the sort of the study of education and the study of, of, of how to teach. And one of the other um, giants that, that, that you didn't mention that I would just like to mention here because I think it's relevant is John Dewey and the early 20th century concept that, that, that he really promoted and developed of experiential learning that is learning 
by doing, children learning not by repeating from a textbook, but by getting out into the world and being active in the world and experiencing phenomena and processing it themselves. That's really forms the bedrock of what we at one point called, and I guess some still call, progressive education. And to me, that experiential learning is also quite relevant to the content of your book and 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 to street art in general graffiti art because it's not something that is produced in you know some uh expensive artist loft in soho it's something that is produced out in the real world in our material reality and something that has to be experienced in the context of the real world by anyone who observes it so there is this interplay not only between you know the the, the uh, artist and the viewer of the artwork, but an interplay between the artwork and the environment, between the artist and the environment, and so forth. So it really kind of multiplies uh, the framework for looking at these pieces. Right. That's that's absolutely correct. And for me, work on the street has a completely different life, a, a different look. You know, it's it's actually a, an, a living organism for me. It, it has a birth. And it has a death because of the weather, because of people ripping it apart or police taking it down. So it's a real organism. Whereas if you go to a museum or a gallery, it's like a, I say it's like a cadaver in a in, in formalin. You know, it could be the most beautiful cadaver that that has ever been presented, but it's still a cadaver. Whereas um, it, when you go out in the street, there's a lot, there's a, there, it's organic. There, there's a death to that piece. And just to connect it with what with your excellent comment, um, it connects very well to some of my research in neuroscience. I was extremely interested in uh, social neuroscience and even the way our brains work. You know, even the way neurons form a synapse. Two neurons that weren't that didn't have an active synapse between them joined to form a synapse. That is the model that how movements should actually, so from the micro to the macro, that's the model where two synapses that had no direct relationship amongst each other are created. That's when you make associations. That's when, that's creativity. Creativity is not something that just comes out of a vacuum. It's the connection of things that weren't connected before. And that's exactly what I mean by one plus one is much more than two because within the collaborative network, uh, it's not a simple matter of addition. It's it's amplified by 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 a lot. So I think it connects really well to 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 how we are built as a species. This is what is natural for us, and we need to evolve into this state of collaboration if we are to survive. Well, and speaking of uh, the evolution of collaboration for the purposes of survival. Um, one thing that strikes me um, is that, you know, the two neurons coming together and, and, and creating a synapse, that's not something that happens for no reason, that it requires an external stimulus. It requires stimuli in order to uh, uh, promote that. And so, yeah, maybe I'm kind of going about this in a roundabout way, but I think, I, well, I want to ask you, is is there a potential for the events of the last, uh, well, we're recording here on Wednesday, November 9th, so the events of the last 24 hours, be, meaning the election of Donald Trump, 
is that potentially the external stimuli that we need to actually build our synapses? And in this context, building our synapses is building our social movements, building our networks, building our, our, our circles of comrades and colleagues that, that, that the liberal establishment has a way of keeping progressives and the left divided, something that Donald Trump and the right wing of the Republican Party can't do. Is it potentially that we're now having that external stimulus that we need? Yes. I mean, you know, Slavoj Žižek talked about how he would vote for Trump or something of that sort, because uh, that would maybe stimulate the system like a I want to clarify that. Let me just clarify that. I am not suggesting that election of Donald Trump is a good thing. I'm I'm simply saying that this could be a catalyst for a radicalizing moment, a transformative moment for the social movements of the left. I, I know you knew where I was going with that, Yoav, but just in case I start getting hate mail from people, let's be sure, clear. Sure. I'm not suggesting Donald Trump's election was a good thing. Right. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot of potential and but this is dependent on on something crucial and something that I've been encountering on social media a lot in the last 24 hours. It's dependent on people actually learning from this. Yeah. Uh, people, yeah. <laughs> people who actually voted for Hillary uh, and I've really maintained an approach where I'm not just attacking and saying I told you so or all this kind of stuff, but really not letting them uh, get away with weaseling out of responsibility. Yep. And if a lot of these people actually learn from this experience, I'm not interested in the blame game, but hey, learn from the experience. There was a mistake made. You trusted somebody who wasn't worthy of your trust. We are now at a point where we need to come together. So instead of trying to blame Jill Stein or Assange or Kremlin or RT or Sputnik or whoever, um, you need to understand that you that you uh, that you screwed up, and that's uh, that's asking a lot. Um, For liberals, oh, you better believe it. Yeah, exactly. That's asking a lot because of people in general build so many defenses against actually being accountable and actually saying I was wrong. They will do anything to feel guilt to not feel guilt. So to answer your question, yes, it is definitely possible. And that's my hope. Do I think it's going to happen? You know, if I look at my, and, and, and if I look at Israel, um, it's, it's kind of deja vu for me because when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu got elected after Rabin was assassinated, it was a very similar um, feeling uh, then uh, similar to now that Trump got elected because people didn't believe it. Shimon Peres was uh, considered, especially after the assassination, uh, you know, he was going to get elected, no problem. And um, that didn't happen. And Bibi Netanyahu got elected and everybody said, oh, now the left is going to come together and coalesce and we're finally going to get this done because he's going to bring everybody together. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. A lot of people just conformed. And, um, yeah, you know, but- like Julian Assange said in, in the interview with John Pilger, he said, people are very adaptable. And that's something that I'm very scared of. Yes, I agree with that. But is, is it because, is it because they, let's say, you know, quote unquote, couldn't come together 
Or is it what I would argue that it's really a failure of leadership? Because ultimately, that's what this sort of thing comes down to. The left is constantly finding itself disorganized, sniping at each other, infighting, factionalized, and uh, mostly irrelevant while the right finds itself organizing and mobilizing and increasing in power. And I, one of the things that where I really do agree with this spirit of what you just said is that this is not something that is going to happen by osmosis. It's not something that's just going to organically and naturally occur. It's going to take organizing. It's going to take leadership. It's going to take militant and direct action and, to put it in the context of this conversation, collaboration. Exactly. You know what, for a very small thing that could have uh, that that could make something huge right now. Just a small example, you said leadership. So I think of somebody like a Bernie Sanders who would go on TV on an interview, say I was wrong, I'm now sitting with Jill Stein and we're talking about how we're going to form a movement. Something like that could potentially create the, the you know, a uh, 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 a force. But just like I said before, and I think this is we're saying the same things um, as far as I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not holding my breath because uh, it's very hard for people to 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 assume responsibility. And you're saying it's a crisis of leadership they're, I think they're related is what I'm trying to say. And I could only pray that that the leaders that we that we need so desperately come out and and, and show leadership. Well, there's no doubt about that. Um, okay, we're we're almost out of time here, but I want to just uh, I want you to tell people a little bit about the exhibition, uh, where they where this is happening, when it's starting, and also you know any other information. Where can people go online to find your work? Where can they go to buy the book? Uh, anything else that you want to let people know about? Sure. The exhibit is November 18th. It's a one night exhibit. Um, and like I said, it's with my collaborative partner, Tao Batiste, and we're going to show portraits of duos. So it's really bringing together the community at the Bronx Museum. Uh, general admittance is 7 to 10 p.m. And we're also going to have a spoken word group, the Peace Poets, who are going to do some collaborative pieces. And we're going to have a DJ and some uh, the, the local brewer, uh, Bronx Brewery is going to have some beer. And we have a local moonshine factory. So it's a, it's, the evening is an attempt to bring the community together in a collaborative spirit. As far as the book, there's going to be a, some copies at the launch. Um, not too many, but some. And then uh, you can find it on Amazon or on uh, Schiffer Publishing, who's my publisher. Uh, and um, my social media to create. Uh, Art of Collaborations or To Create um, is, is, is visible to anybody who wants to join and contribute and put up their collaborations and talk about them, et cetera, et cetera. And part of the reason why I really um, am so happy to have you on the show as well is because uh, listeners might not know this or you know might it might not immediately strike them but you're also a regular contributor to counterpunch and again i i i urge people to consider just how much original content you're getting in counterpunch from people like yoav litvin i mean these are the kinds of perspectives that i think are so important now lastly yoav i'm, I'm wondering so 
this is a this is sort of a one-off exhibition here in the Bronx but is there are there plans to take this on the road is this going to other cities where you know is there interest in putting similar types of um, you know exhibits together what do you envision in the future for this project and tell us if you could maybe a little bit about any future projects sure Tao and I would love to take this show on the road we've been so focused Tao is a CUNY professor, so he's got a full-time full -time job, and I'm also extremely busy with my work, so we've been focusing on this one night, but there are a couple of leads for other uh, places within New York City that perhaps would exhibit, and we're definitely open to the, the show going on the road. I think it's a very important exhibit, and we'd love to take it on the road in the U.S. or outside the U.S. Um, what was your second question? I forgot. Um, my second question, I also forgot. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know. I guess I'll have to cut that oh, out or maybe I'll leave it in. Who knows? The future work. Um, yes, exactly. I, I am working on a new project, um, about collaborations within, uh, um, social justice. So I've kind of, um, I felt, I, I feel like I've for now at least exhausted the street art graffiti uh, documentation, and I'm just focusing on collaboration within different social movements, within anti-war movements, and uh, focusing on the relationship between the duos and also on the movements. So if it's Black Lives Matter or anti-war movement or um, any other movement that 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 is, you know, uh, has 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 some importance in, in today's uh, today's struggles, indigenous uh, struggles, et cetera, et cetera. So that's. That's where I'm looking to focus my work. Absolutely. And again, I mean, think about the movements that are active right now that are on the forefront fighting um, against the, you know, the, the, the structure. I mean, the Dakota, the Dakota pipeline protests, all of those indigenous uh, uh, groups and all of the other groups that came out in solidarity. You think about Black Lives Matter. You think about these these movements that are really vibrant. They are inherently, I mean, as all movements are about collaboration, but in, in a sense these new movements are central to this question of collaboration on the macro scale and frankly if you're one of these people who is you know digging a bunker in your backyard because of Donald Trump you should really consider that maybe it is the social movements and not the politicians who are ultimately going to find a solution right there's collaboration from the people, from the grassroots and uh, in, within these movements. And there's also the alternative of collaborating with the state, which is something that I talk a lot about in my writings about propaganda and try to try to bring in my personal experience um, uh, from my from my uh, period in the in the IDF where uh, I was a, a soldier, you know, a part of a big machine that tells you what to do and um, and that's also collaborative, but it's extremely hierarchical, and it's um, it's a, it's a completely different model. So it's important also to think about the different collaborative models and to uh, engage in the ones that are democratic. 
Absolutely right. Well said. Okay, we're gonna have to leave it there. Yoav Litvin, I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to you for coming on the show. Uh, listeners, do check out uh, To Create. Uh, if you're in the New York area, do get to the Bronx Museum for November 18th for the exhibition there, and uh, find Yoav on social media. He's a good guy. A lot of good information. Yoav, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always. I will speak to you again real soon.